following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Somehow we have to find our way back to each other. I love that phrase. To be, uh, to me, this is really what the gospel is about, the good news of Jesus. It's about finding our way back, not only to God, but actually finding our way back to each other. But here's the thing, the interesting thing. In the Western church, and I would say particularly in the evangelical church, we have not talked about shame. We have tended to talk mainly about guilt. We haven't seen shame as the problem. We've seen guilt as the problem. Here would be a version of the gospel based on guilt, which would be familiar to many of us. Um, humanity, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, has been given by God certain standards of behavior to live up to. These standards written on the human heart and in the human conscience have been violated and so humanity stands rightly condemned, guilty before God and thus deserving punishment. At the cross, however, Jesus becomes the guilty one in place of us and is so punished in place of us. And because our guilt is dealt with, we can once again experience relationship with God. So that would be a kind of a standard um, version of the gospel based on uh, the thought that guilt is the basic problem. But what if, even if our guilt is taken away, we are still left with our shame? What about this problem of shame? And so this morning, I want us to think just a bit more about shame and then think about the gospel and think about what is happening at the cross. So as Brenny Brown says, guilt is, I have done something wrong. The focus is on action and behavior. Shame is, I am something wrong. I am something bad. The focus is on yourself and your sense of self. So with guilt, you are judging your actions and evaluating your actions. With shame, you're actually judging and evaluating your own self, your own being. The very thing that makes you, you. You're judging that. So shame is that sense deep down I am really not a good person. Deep down, I am really not worthy of respect. I'm really not worthy of love. Deep down, I am basically worthless. I am not deserving of love. Deep down, deep within me. Those researching shame argue that the effects of shame are extensive and varied. A person suffering from shame has the tendency to blame, thanks, to blame others for issues associated with their own negative assessment of themselves. In fact, this tendency to blame something else or someone else rather than take responsibility is one of the chief markers of shame, not taking responsibility for ourselves but blaming others. 
Another key marker of shame is lack of empathy. The experience of shame is such a painful and overwhelming experience. It means that a person suffering from shame finds it actually difficult to respond to the needs of others because you're so caught up in your own shame. So in other words, shame, when you feel that, it gets in the way of you being able to love other people. And there's also strong links between shame and aggression and anger due to the difficulties of managing all these feelings that are going on within you. Other researchers have found that shame is the cause of a wide variety of addictive behaviors, including substance abuse, workaholism, eating disorders, and family violence. One of the key defining experiences of shame described by a number of writers is the fear of exposure. Just next slide. Here's an extensive uh, conclusion by a shame re researcher. To feel shame is to, be f is to feel seen in a painfully diminished sense, how others perceive you. The self feels exposed, both to itself and to anyone present. It is this sudden, unexpected feeling of exposure an accompanying self-consciousness that characterizes the essential nature of the affect of shame. Contained in the experience of shame is the piercing awareness of ourselves as fundamentally deficient in some vital way as a human being. When you experience this sense of exposure, what do you then do? You withdraw from other people. Shame leads to the need to hide or escape from others, to not be truly seen by others. Here's, uh, here's what other researchers who have researched shame have to say. Next slide, yeah, thanks. Shame is that painful feeling of being exposed, uncovered, unprotected, and vulnerable. Shame is often accompanied by a sense of shrinking and being small, a sense of worthlessness and powerlessness. Shame defeats us, rendering us incapable of free agency, living with that sense of freedom, being able to be free in our actions, in our love, in the world. One of the problems for us when we talk about shame is that to talk about shame, ironically, is in fact a shame-filled thing to do. We cannot talk about shame because of our shame. And so we tend to avoid talking about shame in general and our own shame in particular. We, that which we all carry, that shame, we cannot be vulnerable. We cannot expose it to others, primarily because of that problem of shame itself. So, um, with all that research on shame, my mind goes to a particular story in Scripture. And it's the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And I find it incredible when I read that story 
in Genesis 3 of Adam and Eve and the fall, how it coheres with the social science research on shame. Generally speaking, Genesis 3 is usually interpreted through the lens of guilt. Adam and Eve disobey God and guilt is the result. But I want us to read this passage knowing what we now know about shame and look at it and perhaps read it in a different way with different eyes. So let's uh, read from Genesis. Uh, last verse, Genesis 2, and then into Genesis 3. So is there any shame going on here, or is it, or is it guilt? Is it, more, is it more guilt, or is it more shame? What, what do you pick up on when we read this with fresh eyes? Okay, so uh, last verse of uh, Genesis 2. Adam and his wife Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. Does that give us any clues? Is, is shame an, an issue potentially? Uh, into chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Clearly in this story of how our original parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin, sin, at least clearly for me, sin is not seen in terms of guilt. Sin is seen in terms of shame. Guilt is not named, referred to, or implied. After eating the fruit and disobeying what God had said, Adam and Eve, at least in this story, we do not read of them experiencing or feeling any guilt. They do not feel or experience any remorse. What do they feel? They feel shame with regard to their nakedness. And we see one of the key effects of shame. They feel exposed. 
They feel they need to hide. And so, first of all, they hide themselves with the fig leaves, Genesis 3-7, and then they hide themselves in the bushes when they heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of, cool of the day, Genesis 3-8. It's too excruciating for Adam and Eve to be in the open and to continue their intimate relationship with God. Their sense of vulnerability is too painful. They are no, will, no longer willing to be seen in the eyes of another God. There are also a number of other key indicators of shame which we've already seen. There is blaming, which is a big thing in the story. There is fear. There is a failure to take responsibility for actions. There is passivity and powerlessness. There is a preoccupation with appearance. All these are indicators of shame. And Adam and Eve experience alienation, distance from themselves, each other, and perhaps most notably from God. Now, in this story, there is no anger or aggression which you often find with shame. But if you go to the next story in the Bible, the story of the two brothers, Cain and Abel, in Genesis 5, there is anger and aggression which ends with murder. And that story, if you again look at it with fresh eyes in Genesis 5, again can be understood as a story of shame. Shame experienced between two siblings. And out of that comes anger, aggression, violence, and ultimately murder. And when we look at God's response in Genesis 3 in the story of Adam and Eve, again, it would seem to me at least to show that the key issue is shame and not guilt. What is God's immediate response, his very first words after the fall? God's very first words are, where are you? Where are you? What's God doing here? God is calling Adam and Eve out of their shame and back into intimate and open and vulnerable relationship. And let me say, this is always God's question to us, even this morning. Where are you? Where are you? It was the question back then. It's God's question always to us right up to today. And then notice Adam's response in verse 10. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. If God's first words are always, where are you? Our first words are always, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. It is this kind of fear that lies at the heart of the human condition that we all experience, that fear of exposure, not only in relation to others, but in relation to God himself. In Genesis 3, however, we see that God compassionately provides Adam and Eve with a more permanent and durable covering for their sense of shame. 
So let me suggest very strongly that God in Genesis 3, in this story of the fall, when sin enters in, God does not come as a judge or a critical parent. He doesn't come with condemnation. He doesn't come with a message of rejection or a message of conditional love. But this is how God now appears to Adam and Eve. Something has happened in Adam and Eve, which means they are perceiving God in quite a different way. They now perceive God differently, so much so that they feel that they cannot have an intimate, open relationship with God. In this story, God has not changed. Adam and Eve have changed. Adam and Eve now interpret the world because of their shame in quite a different way. They interpret the world as critical, unsafe. And now they interpret God as being critical and unsafe. What do you do when you're in the presence of someone who's critical and unsafe? You hide. Something had happened in the heart and the mind of Adam and Eve. And all of this points to shame as being the key human problem. So here's the thing. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that all humanity, all of us, are bound up with Adam. So when we look at Adam, we see a picture of humanity which means that if Adam's problem is shame, our problem is shame, because we are bound up with Adam. And what I find really interesting is that this is backed up by the social science research. This Genesis 3, the story of Adam and Eve is now being backed up by social science research. So the big problem is if shame is the problem, or at least if shame is one of the key problems, how does Jesus solve the problem? How does Jesus solve the problem? As I've mentioned in Romans chapter 5, and also 1 Corinthians 15, if you read it, Paul says that Adam's story is our story. But then he says there is actually a second Adam. A second Adam who is able to undo all the trouble that the first Adam got us into. Let me read some verses from Romans 5. This is from the message uh, paraphrase. If death got the upper hand through the one man's wrongdoing, that's the first Adam, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes, sovereign life, in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, the grand setting everything right that the one man, Jesus Christ, provides. Adam gets us into a whole heap of trouble. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, gets us back out of that trouble. So let's think, how does the second Adam, Jesus Christ, put everything right? Well, first of all, Jesus enters into our situation. 
He actually enters into the situation of the first Adam. If Jesus is going to put this right, he needs to enter into it in order to put it right. So Jesus fully enters into our humanity. He fully identifies with us. And let me suggest that part of that full identification with us is actually identifying with us in our shame. Now, this full identification of Jesus with us in our condition is one of the keys, key themes for some of the writers of the New Testament, especially Hebrews. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. I may have that up there. Yep. Since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, he, he too shared in their humanity. Then Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, just in the same way that we are tempted. He too was tempted, yet he did not sin. And then Romans 8.3, Christ was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Which is interesting. Jesus enters into our actual fallen human condition in order to redeem that, in order to save us right there. He enters into it. If Jesus is going to heal us and heal our humanity, he actually has to take our humanity on himself. So this means that Jesus himself enters into the very depths of shame. Jesus experiences our shame. Jesus experiences the darkness of our humanity. And there he grabs hold of our fallen humanity, and he heals it, and he turns it around, and he offers our humanity back to the Father, restoring us in our relationship with God and each other. Jesus takes on himself our shame-filled humanity. And all the fears and all the tension and all the doubts and all the suspicion and all the ways of seeing that accompanies our shame, Jesus takes that on himself. But yet, he does it in such a way that he himself does not live out of the behavior that comes from shame. He does not allow shame to overwhelm him. And with Jesus, as opposed to the first Adam, what we see in him is faithfulness and obedience rather than unfaithfulness and disobedience. He's the second Adam. And he undoes what the first Adam does. So where does all this happen? This Jesus entering into our human condition, where does it happen? It actually happens throughout the whole life of Jesus, his birth, his life, his ministry. But of course, it happens most especially in his death on the cross. The cross is primarily an instrument of shame. The cross, yeah, sure, the cross is painful, was painful, 
but it wasn't primarily designed to be an instrument of pain. It was actually primarily designed to be an instrument of shame, to expose the person naked to the whole world. Uh, Remember what Brenny Brown said, shame drives two big capes, never good enough, and who do you think you are? Think about how these tapes would have been playing for Jesus hanging on the cross. Who do you think you are? Never good enough. The cross was reserved for those least worthy of respect. In Roman culture, the cross was a vulgar word. It was kind of like a swear word that you would never use in civilized company. You would never say cross because it was reserved for for the shame. It was a, a place of shame. It was not uncommon for the condemned to be killed before crucifixion. They were killed and then they were put on the cross because the point was shame and humiliation rather than mere painful death. Shame and the cross was used to destroy the person by destroying their name and their reputation. For Christ, all this is compounded by how he is treated prior to his crucifixion. He's rejected by the crowds who had previously acclaimed him. He's bound and he's silenced. He's teased and he's badgered. He's dressed up like a grotesque king. He's spat upon. He's used for humiliating sport. He's beaten. And all of this comes to a head on the cross itself. On the cross, Christ is abandoned and a mocking sign is put above his head and he is derided by passers-by. And perhaps most significantly in terms of shame, he dies naked, exposed before the world. Um, you, you can't really see this, and it's maybe a good thing. Um, mo- most of the times when you see pictures of Jesus on the cross, he's not naked. You know, he's, his, his private parts are covered up. But that is not how it would have been. Jesus would literally have been naked on the cross. Literally naked. Exposed before the world. This was the only slide that I could find, and it's, it's a kind of a modest nakedness of Jesus on the cross. But it was a place of shame. It was a place of exposure before the world. For Jesus, it's in the midst of this shame and nakedness that he experiences the worst shame of all. And what is the worst shame of all? It is to be completely abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have a couple of quotes here to describe this cry of abandonment. First one is by theologian I like, T.F. Torrance. This is the cry of abandonment. When Jesus experiences that abandonment, it is there that we are carried to the extreme edges of our existence, to the very brink of the abysmal chasm that separates us from God. It is there that we see the end of all our theologizing in sheer God-forsakenness, in the desolate waste where God is hidden from us 
by our sin and self-will and self-inflicted blindness and where, as it were, God has died out on us and is nowhere to be found by any man. This is the experience of Jesus, the experience of shame and abandonment. And then another theologian I like, Baxter Kruger, powerfully and poetically describes this reality and also refers to the experience of shame contained in it. Who has cried this cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is this not the cry of Adam, blind and trembling in the bushes? Is it not the unspeakable fear of every human heart, trapped in the great darkness, with no true vision of the Father? This is our cry. Under the shame of our angst-ridden imaginations, mocked by the endless misperceptions of the self-righteous and the all-seeing religious eye, Jesus identified with us. He heard the haunting, harassing whisper, I am not acceptable. I am not good enough. I am not important. And he felt the bitter curse of its judgment. With the leaves of the garden, Garden of Eden, with the leaves of the garden rustling with the rumor of our failure, he stared into the terrifying shadows of rejection and abandonment, the experience of shame. But here's the thing. What does Jesus do in this place of shame? What does Jesus do when he feels completely abandoned and rejected by God? What does Jesus do? What does he do when he hears the whisper, I am not worthy, I am not lovable, I am not acceptable? What does Jesus do? In the depths of our shame, the shame that haunts us and infects our humanity. What does Jesus do? Jesus continues to trust the Father. In the depths of our shame, Jesus continues to trust the Father. Jesus continues to be faithful for us and on our behalf. He trusts his life and care over to God. Jesus' last words are not, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After that, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And this is in the depths of our darkness, in the depths of our shame that he has taken on. Jesus heals our humanity by giving himself in perfect love and trust to the Father. He does this for us and on our behalf. This is how our shameful humanity is healed, by Jesus himself actually entering into it. To see this and to live on the basis that this is actually true. This is true. This is real. To see this is the beginning of faith. Let's pray. Our Father, whose love for us 
is beyond comprehension. You have seen us lost and in our darkness, lost in our shame. And you have come for us. In your Son, you have entered in in order to find us. And so we thank you. Help us to have the faith, the eyes to see this, what is true and what is real. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.